Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Okay, before we get started tonight, we have something missing. I looked back in Lawson and found it didn't see it. Maybe someone has it in their house. If you find it, you need to call the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., because the Israeli government wants their Ark of the Covenant back. The question is, where is it? This is going to be a five-part series of a revelation characteristic. Then part six is going to be how this all relates to the book of Revelation itself. You know what that building is, don't you? It's one of the most recognized and one of the most fought-after pieces of property in history. That is the Dome of the Rock located on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's not perfectly situated on top of the, the, whole, the most holy place of the previous two temples, but it's very close. You can go online and actually see an overlay. The Dome of the Rock is actually covering the most holy place as well as some of the other parts of the previous two temples, which are buried beneath this, about 75 feet. The question is, though, where is the Ark of the Covenant? We're going to look at five different theories. Theory number one is it's still buried in Jerusalem. Temple Mount, I'm going to end up having to read some of this information because there's just so much here, I can't memorize it all. Temple Mount contains approximately 40 tunnels beneath it. Not all these tunnels have been, have been excavated. Not all have been explored. Some have. In 1981, a rabbi secretly dug beneath the western wall. And somehow or another, August the 27th, 1981, a local radio station got word of it. And of course, they're going to broadcast it and tell the world. Well, that almost kicked off a holy war with the Muslims. They were not happy, so the prime minister had to suddenly halt the the excavation, and no more digging was permitted beneath Temple Mount. And even today, there's just a limited amount of digging going on. The last time the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned in the Bible is when the Babylonians were coming to call. At about 5, let's see, was it 586 B.C.? Sometime around in there, But the question is, what did they do with it? In this picture, we have Temple Mount, we have the Dome of the Rock, and we have the Western Wailing Wall. Two of the tunnels of interest include St. Anne's Church. This is a Baptist church, uh, Baptist church, it's a Catholic church on the northeastern corner of Temple Mount. This church is right next door to the Pool of Bethesda. Beneath this church, and beneath the pool are sets of cisterns and and tunnels that were built back about the time, or actually before the time of Jesus. 
And it is thought that these tunnels, at least the one from St. Anne's Church, is going to go directly beneath Dunwith Rock, which is where the last known resting place of the ark was. It's about 500 feet from Dunwith Rock, so it's not really that far. There is another tunnel that's rather interesting, the Gihon Spring Tunnel. The Gihon Spring is, is down south in the city of David. There is a tunnel that goes all the way from the city of David past the western wall, and then it hangs a right and ends up close to the northwestern corner. Here is, a, here is an actual... This is off the Science Channel. This is the documentary I was watching. Um, here's St. Anne's Church, and this is the actual path that they think the tunnel actually makes. They think it actually goes beneath the tunnel beneath the Dome of the Rock. This tunnel right here is from the Gion Springs. It goes up, then hangs a right, and then ends right there. Why is the Gion Spring Tunnel even interesting? It's because of this. This was found while excavating part of that tunnel they think they know what it is, and you actually know what it is, you just don't know it yet. Recently, um, Glenn Colley mentioned it in one of his sermons. In Exodus chapter 28, verses 33 and 34, Aaron is given instructions on what the priest is supposed to wear, and one of the things he is supposed to wear is bells on the hem of his robe, so that when he goes in and out of the holy place, that bell will ring so that he will not die, according to verse 35. It is believed that this little item is one of those bells from the high priest's hymn. And the reason they think that is because when they picked it up, it rang. It rang like a bell. If that is what, this, if that is what the high priest wore, then that means that those priests, the priest and the high priest both, were in these tunnels beneath the temple mount. Another possibility as where the ark might be is beside Temple Mount in, in a graveyard. This is a cemetery. It's got over 100,000 tombs in it. What's interesting about this, this, this cemetery is some of the last people on earth who saw the, temple, who saw the Ark of the Covenant in person are actually buried here. Several priests are buried here. In fact, there is even a high priest buried here as well. They found lots of, lots of ornamental things that a priest would wear. And they're wondering if maybe beneath one of these tombs, possibly the ark is, hid, is hidden. One interesting thing that I'll, I'll point this out, it's just to give you an idea of what's going on here. You see, you see the, the western wailing wall there? I don't know how easy, that's not really easy to see. The city of Jerusalem is built almost to the top of the, of the Temple Mount wall, which means there's about 75 feet of tunnels beneath here. If you go through here, you will actually eventually come to what's called the Warren Gate. It is the gate that was closest to the most holy place when the ark was in the most holy place. The uh, 
the Jews actually have a little meeting place. I don't want to call it a church because it's, it's underground. It's a little meeting place. It's, a, it's one of the most holy places for the, Jewish, for the Jewish people. And they actually have a little seating area where they can conduct their worship services there at the Warren Gate because that was the gate going into Temple Mount that was closest to where the Ark of the Covenant was located. So the question is, where is the Ark? Is it still, is it still beneath um, Temple Mount in one of these tunnels? Lots of tunnels that cannot be uh, excavated or explored are tunnels that are underneath the Muslim quarters of Temple Mount. Apparently, Temple Mount is split in half. Muslims own part of it, the Jews own the other part. However, the Jews rarely, if ever, will actually go on Temple Mount because they're afraid they're going to step on a location where the most holy place was actually located. So mostly it's Muslims on Temple Mount. There are a total of five possibilities, five theories of where the Ark of the Covenant is. Most people think it's actually still in, still buried underneath Jerusalem. Next week we're going to look at the possibility that the Romans stole it. There is some intriguing evidence concerning General Titus that possibly, possibly, he stole it. And that is the first installment of the, and I'm messing up here, first installment of the Ark of the Covenant. I'm having to switch between three different slide decks here. I'm getting lost. Okay. One of the theories is that the Ark of the Covenant is in Ireland. That's going to be an interesting one. One theory has it that Jeremiah actually left with the ark before the Babylonians got to town, and he actually took it all the way to Ireland. We'll look at that. We'll look at that evidence eventually. Tonight we actually start chapter one. Before we start every chapter, Brother Glenn Holmes is going to read that chapter for us. Jack Venepe pulls a stunt on his television programs. What he will do, he will pick a piece of a verse in one chapter, then jump to three or four chapters later, pick a piece out of a verse there, read it. He does that all over the play, all over the book of Revelation. He tries to create a narrative to try to prove that Jesus is coming soon. We're not going to pull a stunt like that in in this class. We're not going to cover chapters 2, 3, and 22 for obvious reasons. We we know what those are all about. We want to spend our time on other chapters that are more important to, to, to cover. But at the beginning of each chapter, Brother Glenn is going to actually read every chapter for us. So if you would like to follow along on your electronic device or your Bible, feel free to. I'm going to display on the screen here... Uh-oh. Display on the screen here the um, some of the artwork that was painted by the lady who owns Revelation Illustrated. So you can have an idea of some of her paintings. She did a really good job. She kept premillennialism out of her paintings on purpose so that everyone can use them. And fortunately, I have a copy of of these from back 30-something years ago before she watermarked them. So I have a clean version, so that worked out really well for me. So, 
Brother Glenn, if you would please go ahead and read chapter 1 for us. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampsticks. And in the midst of the seven lampsticks, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am, <clears throat> I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven church, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. If you like our pictures, 
I think she did a good job. I, I, really, I really do like looking at them. We'll look at them at the beginning of each chapter that's, that's, that's read. Okay, chapter one. We're finally, finally getting into the chapters. Before we can actually get to chapter one, verse one, we have to deal with a couple of problems. You cannot turn from the book of Jude to the book of Revelation without hitting a controversy right off the bat. This is a picture of my Revelation title page in a Greek interlinear that I own. I remember Mark Bailey showing you his. Um, If you don't have a Greek interlinear, these things are invaluable. Be sure and get one. They are they're interesting, if nothing else, but you can learn a lot about what the actual Greek words mean. This, along with BibleHub.com, can get you to the exact meaning of, of any Greek word in the Bible. But this is, actually, this is actually a snapshot of the top of mind. The problem is we have two Greek words here. Okay, the Greek word on the right, that's John. Sometimes it's, in, it's translated James. The problem is this word right here. How many of you know what that word is? It's not revelation. Hmm? Yeah. Very good. It's the same word that, that the uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 1 starts with. If you look at the BibleHub.com and look at the transliteration, the transliteration of this word is apocalypsis. That is where we get the word apocalypse. The title of this book is not Revelation, it's Apocalypse. Now, a premillennialist is going to come to you and say, See, see, I told you Revelation is about the end of times. I told you Revelation is about the destruction of the earth and judgment afterwards. If someone comes to you and says that, how are you going to answer them? Interestingly enough, this same Greek word or a version of it actually appears 18 times in the Bible. Every single time it is translated revealing or unveiling. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a theater curtain being drawn back and you get to see what's behind it. The literal Greek word literally means to pull a lid off of something and see what's inside. But hold it, if apocalypse is the destruction of the world and the end of the world and end times, why is it translated revealing and unveiling every time it appears in the, in the, in the Bible? I thought the apocalypse was supposed to be the end of the world, the end of times, complete with fire or flame scorching the earth into oblivion. Or at least, as Hollywood presents it, I thought it was supposed to be at least be a survival situation for, for all humanity. So why is apocalypse translated revealing revealing or an unveiling? How do you answer premillennialists when they say, hey, y'all got Revelation all wrong. It is the apocalypse because that is the actual name of it. Good question, good question. Here's the answer. A Daily News article written by Pete Hog, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. He said this. He said, Apocalypse comes from Greek, the original language of the book of Revelation. It means uncover, disclose, reveal. 
In late 14th century Latin, it became the word revelation. In Middle English, its general sense was insight or vision. This is what's important right here. Its usage usage as a cataclysmic event is modern. By 1858, it had come to mean a belief in an imminent end to the present world. Oh, you know what that's saying? That's saying that we're taking a modern-day definition of a word and applying it back to words written 2,000 years ago. Is that true? Let's take a look at etymology online. It is a study of the origins of words and their definitions. At this website here at the bottom of the page, you'll see this little snippet. It says, Apocalypse. Its general use in Middle English was insight, vision, hallucination. Its meaning, a clad- the meaning a cataclysmic event is modern. Apocalypticism, the belief in an imminent end of the present world, is from 1858. Hmm, interesting. The etymology online agrees with that as well. Let's go to the definitive word, though. A lot of us grew up with this dictionary, Merriam-Webster Dictionary Online. What do they say about it? They say apocalypticism is a doctrine concerning an imminent end to the world and an ensuing general resurrection and final judgment. First known use of, a, use of this definition, 1858. So we have premillennialists taking a definition from 1858. It's less than 175 years old, and they're applying it to a book written 2,000 years ago. How intellectually dishonest can you get more than that? Not good. Not good at all. So what is the conclusion? Don't apply modern-day definitions to words and phrases written 2,000 years ago. Does anyone disagree with that conclusion? Because believe it or not, we're going to hit this again in just a few moments. Don't take modern day definitions and apply them to words written 2,000 years ago because you're going to get yourself in all kinds of trouble doing that. The second controversy, this is not really a controversy, it's just an interesting note. If you look at the top of... of uh, Paper copies of the Bible, you'll see things like this. The revelation of St. John the Divine. uh, The revelation of Jesus Christ. The uh, revelation of Jesus Christ to John. Okay, whose revelation is this? This particular book, this Bible, this is the King James Version. It says, the revelation of St. John the Divine. This one is a new King James Version. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So someone please tell me, whose revelation is this? And by the way, everything you've heard so far is not the right answer. If you read chapter 1, verse 1, it tells you whose revelation this is. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. This isn't Jesus' revelation. It's not John's revelation. It's God's. He's the one who owned it. And he's the one who gave it to Jesus to give on to the angel and to give it to John. Whose is it? It's God's. Who's missing? There's somebody missing in this verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent them 
And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Okay, we've got Jesus, we've got God, we've got an angel, we have John. Who's missing? Yeah, where's the Spirit? Hold it. Is this book inspired then? If the Holy Spirit is left out of this, is it inspired? You're going to have to prove it's inspired from the book of Revelation itself. How do you do that? Good question. When we get to verse 10, we're going to see this. We're going to see, John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Is this book inspired? Yes, it is. Absolutely it is. And not just because 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired of God. Remember, we're talking about premillennialists here. You can't go outside the book of Revelation and pick up verses to try to prove something to the premillennialists. Because remember what we said in Lesson 1, if a premillennialist translation, interpretation of Revelation contradicts another verse in the Bible, well, that's just God correcting an error. So you're going to have to prove it from the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, John claims four times to be in the Spirit. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, verse, chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 17, verse 3, chapter 21, verse 10. Four times John said, I was in the Spirit or I was taken away into the Spirit. So John himself says he is inspired. The Spirit was, I don't know if you call it controlling his mind, guiding his mind. The Spirit made it possible for him to see things that ordinarily humans cannot see. And a little surprise that comes up in Revelation chapter 10. When you go to bed tonight, I want you to get a, I want you to take a pad of paper and a pencil and lay it beside you before you go to sleep. And when you wake up tomorrow morning, if this actually happens, be sure and call me. I want to know it. I want to know if during your sleep you wrote down what your dream was about that night. I suspect that notepad's going to be empty that next morning. Revelation chapter 10, verse 4. John is writing the book of Revelation at the same time he is seeing the vision. That's inspired. Yeah, that's inspiration. It has to be. You can't do it yourself. In Revelation chapter, chapter 10, verse 4, John heard some thunders speak words. He went to write and was told and was told not to. <clears throat> Excuse me. And was told, no, don't write those. It is not lawful for any man to hear those. He was writing at the same time that he was in the spirit, seeing the vision. Verse two has has an interesting little twist to it. And this is going to be something that you're going to have to decide for yourself. I'm not going to decide this for you. I'll just provide the evidence and let you decide yourself. Historically, book prefaces are written by the author after the book is written. And that's probably true from, the, from, from what I've read. That's probably true with the book of Revelation too. The first few verses of chapter 1 are the preface that John wrote concerning the book of Revelation he had just written. Chapters, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, uh, somewhere in that area is when... The preface ends and the vision begins. This verse has two phrases in it 
that I'm not exactly sure the interpretation of. I know what this phrase means the rest of the way through the book of Revelation, but here it can mean two different things. The Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Word of God is found five times in the book of Revelation. The testimony of Jesus Christ, that phrase, is found nine times. Does it mean the gospel, or does it mean the revelation vision itself? The rest of the references with these two phrases means the gospel. That, that's easily proven. Here, uh, I don't know. I'm not so sure. This could be that he bore record of all the things he saw, the word of God coming from him and the testimony of the revelation coming from Jesus Christ. Or it could mean that he bare record to the people of everything he saw from God, everything he saw from Jesus, and in the same manner, he is telling everyone everything he saw in the vision as well. He could be comparing his ministry with what he's doing here in the book of Revelation to, to verify that what he is saying in the book of Revelation is what he heard and what he saw. I'll, I'll leave that up to you. I'd, I'd, I can't go either way because there's arguments both both sides. So you, you're going to have to decide that for yourself. You have seen this verse before. We've talked about it when... Um, Oh, when we talked about the definition of tribulation, that was last, last week, week before last. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The oral tradition is John was exiled as a prisoner to a penal colony to work on salt mines. The problem is, if you start, go back and start reading some of these 1st and 2nd century historians, you're going to find out that that oral tradition actually contradicts several of those early writers. Jerome, Pliny the Elder, Tacitus, Procris himself. I actually have that slide out of order. That just shows you where Patmos is. That one of Patmos is closer to Ephesus than any other of the seven churches of Asia. Ephesus is where John lived. Supposedly, in the Roman court, if you are going to be convicted and you know you're going to be convicted of a crime, you can actually appeal to the court and say, I'll be exiled and I'll just just be exiled here. I'll save you all the time of going through the court, the trial. I'll just be exiled and go. That might be what happened to John. And if it is, he chose Patmos. It's the closest island, inhabited island, to, the, to Ephesus. I shouldn't have had that in, in that order. Let's look at six, six, instances, instance, six instances that contradict the idea that John was a prisoner and working in salt mines. Pliny the Elder, in his book, Natural Histories, book 3, chapter 12, verse 69, said that Tacitus 
in his, in his historical writings, Annals Book 3, Chapter 68, is often cited by scholars in favor of the exile interpretation. But this text only demonstrates that banishment to islands was a regularly practiced punishment. Patmos is not listed by Tacitus as one of the islands that the Caesars liked to exile people to. The Justin Martyr blog in the same book, Annals, Book 4, chapter 30, Tacitus refers to the islands of, I don't know how to pronounce these, Jairus, Danusa, and Amargus, as locations which he was aware of that were used for Roman punishment of banishment and exile. Patmos is not listed. Gordon Friends in the pretribulation.org, he said, in the first century Roman world, Patmos was a very strategic island on the sea lanes from Ephesus to Rome. The first stop on this line of communication and commerce for a boat sailing from Ephesus to Rome, which would have been Patmos because of its natural and protective harbor. The last stop for a boat coming from Rome would be Patmos. This island had a large administrative center, outlying villages, a hippodrome for horse racing, and at least three pagan temples, hardly an isolated and desolate place. In the travels of, Saint, of, of John on Patmos, written by Prochorus, he said, according to church tradition, the book Travels of St. John in Patmos was written by Prochorus, the same one mentioned in Acts 6.5. The secretary to John, if it is historically reliable, then John was only banished to the island, not imprisoned. And in that same book, on the trip to Patmos, Prochorus is writing, saying that on the trip to Patmos, a violent storm arose and a passenger was swept into the sea. John prayed and a wave deposited the young man back onto the boat. This miracle gave John opportunity to preach to the gospel. Once on Patmos, the Roman governor, Laurentius, set him free. Apparently, Prochorus, who was mentioned in the book of Acts as being the secretary or the personal assistant to the Apostle John, actually went with him to Patmos. Um, the last one. Laurentius' father-in-law, Myron, offered the Apostle lodging in his house, and soon Myron's house became the first church on the island of Patmos. John healed Apollonides, who was Myron's son, who was possessed with the devil, and this miracle led to the conversion of both Chrysippe, Myron's daughter, and her husband, the Roman governor. It is an oral tradition that John was taken away as a prisoner and worked in the salt mines. Now, was he exiled? Yes, apparently so. We've already, we've already discussed that at some length. He was exiled, but when he got there, apparently he had, he had free, free roam of the island. The governor set him free. So he, he was in exile still, but, but he got to move around. He wasn't in chains. This one is going to kick up a little bit of dust. In verse 10, we we read this. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. This is a trick question. Don't answer it. Just answer it to yourself. On what day of the week was the revelation seen and written? 
Don't say Sunday because we don't know. We have no idea what day of the week it was on. Seven translations capitalize the word day in Lord's Day. This is the list of New International Version, New Living Translation, including the New King James Version. And according to BibleHub.com, 39 do not. So the question is, should that, should, should that letter be capitalized or not? Now Mark Bailey mentioned in his class so that I asked you to, to, to listen to again. I hope you did because I'm not going to get deep into it like he did. In the 9th century A.D., the Greek letters started becoming upper lower case. Before that, they were all upper case. There was no, there was no di- distinction between proper nouns and special days. It was all capital letters. If you go to BibleHub.com, you will see this. Let's go to the next one. I forgot to delete that other slide. You will see this. You will see the word Lord's and its column of information, and you will see day, its column of information. BibleHug.com does not capitalize the letter D in day. Those two Greek words, uh, transliterated K-Y-R-I-A-K-E, and day is transliterated H-E-M-E-R-A. There are six facts, and and one of the facts is These two Greek words in this order are not found anywhere else in the Bible. So we have no cross-reference anywhere else in the Bible to see if that day should be capitalized or not. There is no evidence, there is no proof that it's Sunday. There's no proof it's Monday. There's no proof really that it's not Sunday, but there is no proof that, that it is Sunday. I already mentioned that. All the Greek alphabet was capital letters until the ninth century. Here's where the dust storm gets kicked up, and I'm kicking it up myself. When you start arbitrarily capitalizing words like this without any, without any reference, without any proof, you're no longer translating, you're interpreting. Applying a modern-day definition to a first-century phrase, Lord's Day. Boy, where have we heard that before? Oh yeah, apocalypse. That's what happens on apocalypse too. We are applying a modern-day definition to words written 2,000 years ago. Now, if someone wants to say that this revelation was seen on Sunday, more power to you, but you can't prove it. It's not a provable thing. And the sixth one, this is important. Don't confuse Lord's Day with Day of the Lord. Those are different Greek words in different orders. Okay? They're not the same thing. Day of the Lord is not the same thing as Lord's Day. The Greek words are different and they are in a different order. Now, let's get into why it very possibly is true that that word day should not be capitalized. Do you recognize that chart? Mark Bailey is shaking his head. Ooh. Mark, Mark Bailey is shaking his head, yes. This was from Mark Bailey's class, Fortifying Our Faith. 
Do you know why that says AD 100? Because one of the la- it, is, it is believed that one of the last books in the Bible to be written is the Gospel of John. Before leaving Patmos, John was asked by the believers to write an account of the life of Jesus. This was the Gospel of John, according to one tradition of the first century church. So, what does that mean? If the book of John really was the last gospel to be written, and it was written by the Apostle John, and if Prochorus' writings are correct, and the gospel of John was written after Revelation, then this would date the gospel of Revelation after John left Patmos while he was living in Asia Minor. Why is that important? Because the first day of the week is always the way the New Testament refers to Sunday. Here are one, two, three, four, five, six, eight eight instances of it. If the Gospel of John was written after Revelation, and if Revelation's Lord's Day now means Sunday, then I have two questions for you. Why is the phrase Lord's Day not used by John in the Gospel of John? If Revelation was written first and the Gospel of John was written afterwards, and the Lord's Day is the way we now talk about Sunday, why was that phrase not used in the Gospel of John too? The Gospel of John used the first day of the week twice. Never said Lord's Day. I can't go much further, or I'm going to hit a bell, I think. Lord's Day. What could Lord's Day mean then? If it's not Sunday... What could it mean? You've got to remember, Revelation is a prophecy of something that was about to happen. John is basically taken forward in time into some future day that God is controlling. And therefore, it's probably called Lord's Day because of that. Multiple references through the, through the book of Revelation on the judgment of the villain of the book of Revelation. Kings of the earth who committed fornication, they call it, with the villain. The accomplices of the villain. God's messages were just be patient. I'm going to take care of it someday. That could be what Lord's Day actually means. The letter D probably should not be capitalized there. If translators come along and they say baptism, I don't want them to put parenthetically sprinkling out beside it. If they're talking about Jesus' mother, Mary, and out in parentheses says mother of God, I don't want them doing that. I don't want them interpreting. I want them to translate, not not interpret. And I don't want translators going around and based upon their own biased agenda capitalizing letters that probably should not be capitalized. Let that be for the reader to decide, not the translator. Yeah, okay. Yeah, just don't don't apply modern day modern day definitions to words back in the Bible unless you know it. That's what that meant actually back then too. Um I don't think I'm going to have time to get into this. I'll go ahead and just show you the whole chart. 
Mark Bailey talked about this in his class. He was talking about how the translators will go and try to do their best. Sometimes they miss it. Try to do their best to capitalize words that should be capitalized. Something interesting happens, though, with the word spirit. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The word spirit in chapter 1, verse 10 is capitalized. I don't have a problem with that. The problem is the other three times that the Spirit is mentioned, it's not capitalized. I don't understand the inconsistency there because clearly it was the Holy Spirit that was helping John see this vision and he was carried away in the Spirit those other three times. If it's not the Holy Spirit, I don't know what Spirit he's talking about. So there you have an inconsistency of capitalization that I can't explain. Let's see. Capitalization of words based upon a translator's biased interpretation of something. Any any translator who capitalizes a letter that should not be capitalized, they are in good, they're in good company. One of the Latin Vulgate translations takes another verse in the book of Revelation and actually adds words into the verse that are not in the original Greek in order to help, kind of help the the user interpret what's going on inside the verse. That's not good. We don't want translators sticking words in there that are not in the Greek and are not, that have nothing to do with any of the connotations of the Greek. Translators are supposed to translate not indoctrinate. We have the same problem with the Syriac Bible. In the preface to Revelation in the Syriac Bible, they tell you who they think put John on the island of Patmos and when they think the book of Revelation was written. That's not their job to do. It's our job to figure that out and do research, not theirs. We'll pick up there next week, actually. That's it. We're done. We're done with chapter 1. that website? Do you know where the website is? I noticed it's not in our, in our Wednesday night sheet anymore. So you can download these sheets. If, uh, if you don't have that website, let me know after services and I'll jot it down for you. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.